four right efforts and four forms of love. And one connection between the two of them is that the desire, to generate the desire for the four efforts, four right efforts, to generate the desire for them can arise out of love. The source of the wish to avoid having unskillful, unwholesome states arise can be love. The wish to have the unskillful states that have arisen, to have to, the, the wish to abandon them, let go of them, can be because we love. And the third one, the desire to awaken, desire to generate skillful, wholesome states can arise from love, from our care for ourselves and for the world, for our compassion for ourselves and the world, for our appreciation of ourselves and the world, and from a profoundly stable, profoundly still place of equanimous love, we can have the desire to maintain and keep going, not lose track of the skillful states. And I emphasize this because uh, desire is such a hugely important part of human beings. I kind of imagine that, at least in my limited experience of life so far, I wonder if there's ever a moment without desire, except when we're totally free. But even then, really, no desire. Desire is intimate and precious, and desire is disembodied and destructive. So the, how do we relate to desires? How do we recognize the desires that are worth having? And how do we act on them in ways that are helpful and useful and help us along the path of liberation? And I think it's one of the great tasks of uh, life is to get a handle on desire, understand desire, its nature, and how to be with them, and how to recognize them. And there are those desires that arise out of stress, desires that arise out of being closed and shut down, 
desires that arise out of being being in pain and not knowing how to be wise and knowing how not, not knowing how to be wise about the pains emotional pain we carry with us and those desires can often be destructive taking it out on other people taking it out on ourselves with enough stress enough being closed down enough being disconnected from the depth inside of ourselves. The desires can be impulsive. They can feel like there's very little control. And so the first two of the right efforts have been described in a simple way which is to learn how to hold your horses. To learn how to not let the wild horses dash around and cause damage. So I have that expression in English, hold your horses, slow down, stop. But that can be done from love from care, from respect and appreciation for this life of ours and the people we know and ourselves. And there are times when it, it takes a lot of effort because the forces, the impulsive forces inside to be angry, to be hateful, to be all kinds of things. It's like a volcano and power and force inside. And it can take a lot of effort to hold the horses. Don't give in. Other times it's relatively easy to hold the horses. And then there's the four efforts, the two efforts for the skillful, for the wholesome. And the contrast to holding the horses, there's this teaching that they can be related to holding yourself dear. Holding yourself with care and respect, kindness, to view yourself as valuable, to view yourself as someone who's worthy of caring for, and opening up the depth of who we are so that the desires we have come from being relaxed, being safe, maybe being content and settled, being peaceful, and, and connected some depth inside of us that we can't connect to if there's a lot of tension and stress, a lot of chasing after thoughts and past and future. And to discover the upwelling of care, of a good heart, the inner goodness is one of the great things of human life. But it's not easy to do. And it's, uh, in my own experience in life, I would say it's pretty easy 
to close. It's pretty easy to shut down. I have memories growing up where I could feel the doors of my heart slam shut in a moment. One, one time that kind of stands out because of the poignancy of that circumstance. I think I was about 15 and I was walking with a, I guess a friend, who's two years older than me, and um, in a beautiful mountainous, alpine kind of setting with skies and mountains with snow on top of them and it was springtime so that where we were there was beautiful green grass and it was just spectacular. And the sky was so huge and immense being up in the mountains. We were walking down a dirt road, country road, and I kind of was in awe. And I said to my friend, kind of in that awe, not really ex looking for an answer, just an expression of the awe. Why are we here? And he said to me, don't be silly. something closed. And I wasn't going to show that part of myself to anyone again. And I don't know, that was, you know, a little bit of my character to do such a, you know, do it so that way, but that was easy. <laughs> that was like, didn't really take any effort or I didn't have to plan, do a lot of planning to close, to shut down. And, um, and so it took years to have that part of me open up and be willing to show itself and come out. And so the desires that could be generated from that place were not available. But the desires that come from that place are, it's not an effort to have them, it's more like just a natural wish, the natural wish. If you're washing your hands, I don't know if it would make sense to say this, but the desire, desire that your left hand has for washing the right and the right for the left. I mean, you know, do they, I don't know if they have desires, but that, that idea of being unselfconscious in the, in the unselfconscious, unplanned, just <clears throat> upwelling of something that's beautiful. And it took a long time for me to come to appreciate, <clears throat> even trust, a long time to trust that there could be these natural, healthy, wholesome desires for goodness, that loves and cares and respects what's here and wants something beautiful to happen. And to, and to feel the naturalness of it and the naturalness of going along. Yes, that's what I'll do. And so this the generating desire for the wholesome or generating desire for the skillful. And um, it's kind of curious, or wonder. I think I'm a little inspired by the idea that in the, in the Abhidhamma, Buddhist psychology, 
they uh, list all these chetasikas, all these mental factors, these mental kind of activities that can go on. They kind of classify them and have lists. And they have a list of them which are unskillful. It's a great list. You probably know them intimately. <laughs> Though you never heard the list, but if you, hear, if you hear, heard them, you say, oh yeah. And then, but what's wonderful is that the list of the opposites, what could be called the skillful, is a lot longer. <laughs> and then they talk about how they, you, they mix, mix, and, mix and match these different mental factors and put them all together and different combinations for different states of minds. And um, there's a lot, and then you have a long, long list. And that longer list, there's a lot more skillful states of mind that are available. Uh, different kinds, different varieties, different combinations. And it's actually very few unskillful ones available. So if you're living in that unskillful states of mind, you're kind of poor. <laughs> you're not, you know, you're living in it's just a little, little, you know, corner of your room of your mind's capacity and potential. There's m much greater, you know, range of things once you get into the skillful side with joy and happiness and different things. But the thing that I wanted to emphasize the most is that, in, so the unskillful they call unskillful, akusula. But the skillful, they don't call skillful, they call sobana. And sobana means beautiful. I just love it that someone, someone long time ago decided that it wasn't good enough to call it skillful, which is kind of like clinical or something, you know, it's a little bit technical or something, skillful. And, um, you know, wholesome is nice, but that's an English translation that some people argue with. But sobana means beautiful. And uh, someone thought, let's call these wonderful states of mind that we have potential for, let's call them beautiful. And so we have this p potential for beauty inside. Beautiful, beautiful minds, beautiful qualities of mind. And to come to appreciate those and to recognize those and value those and have the ability to, to touch into them and have them arise. For me, you know, it was slow in coming. It wasn't easy in practice. But if you want to be wealthy, for the Buddha, that's how you become wealthy, is a wealth of these beautiful states of mind inside. And it's also how you become really beautiful. You don't go to the spa, unless this is the spa. <laughs> you go, you know, you go, you go someplace or you do the things that somehow connects you to, awakens to what's beautiful inside, and grows it, develops it, helps it to flower. And not because you should and not because of greed for it and not because of conceit around it, 
but I think there can be this natural, of, cor- of course, that's what you want when you love something and care for something. You appreciate yourself and appreciate the world. When I'm thinking about this, um, um, you know, this uh, generate desire for the arising of unarisen skillful states, that we've, you know, when, in this schema that we put up for this retreat, that this is connected with mudita, sympathetic joy or appreciative joy. It just seems so perfect, you know, to have an appreciation for and delight for what's beautiful in ourselves, in oneself and in others. And that rather than, again, some should and rather than some you know, some kind of greedy strategy to get better states of mind, but to have our desire for what's beautiful come from a deep appreciation, deep appreciation of ourselves and appreciation for others and appreciation for our potential. Wow, it's so great. This right effort is, as you, many of you know, is the sixth step in the Eightfold Path. And the seventh is right mindfulness, and the eighth is right concentration. And Andrea talked very nicely yesterday about how mindfulness kind of fulfills the four right efforts, and they're, 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 how intimately they can be connected. And these two, the arising of the awareness of mindfulness and and concentration are kind of the preeminent skillful states or beautiful states that uh, can be cultivated as as these right efforts. So as as she said, you know, they're not separate. They can be integra- inter- integrally connected to the so the desire generate the desire for the arising of skillful states can be no more than arise. Arri- arousing the desire, generating the desire to be mindful, to be present, to be aware. And uh, one of the qualities of this mindfulness uh, is non-interfering awareness. To have an awareness that doesn't interfere with anything. You know, if um, there's an analogy that goes back to the time of the Buddha, that um, if you wave your hand through the air, there's no obstacles, no interference for it. It just kind of moves freely through. Or another analogy that's used is that of musical notes. You play, you pluck a (coughs) stringed instrument and the musical notes travel through the air without any obstacles. They just, they're free and move. So that sense of no interference, no obstacles in the field of awareness. Sometimes awareness is likened to space. And this idea that things can arise and move through it and be known 
but there's not any tightening up, no resistance, no holding on, no attacking, no pouncing. I used to do the the jerking strategy for coming back to my breathing. You know, I noticed I my mind wandered off and I'd jerk it back to the breath. Stay there. It doesn't that's kinda like not non interfering. That's kinda like getting in there and messing with stuff. So how do you be aware of breathings in a way that doesn't interfere, doesn't agitate? So non-interfering. So mindfulness I associate with non-interference. The other thing I associate with mindfulness is um, absence of conflict. There's no conflict with what's what's there. Now you and in, in your wisdom, in our wisdom, we might understand that some things shouldn't be and we'll say no to them and do something about certain things. But that's about action and wisdom. But the mindfulness by itself, in its in and of itself is an awareness that the awareness has no conflict with what is known. So there's no interfering with what we know, and what we know does not interfere with us. It's a two-way thing. It doesn't interfere with us. We sit and meditate, and the breathing is uncomfortable. Sooner or later, you'll have an uncomfortable breathing and if you're, that's what you're focusing on is breathing. And so, okay, so no, I'm not gonna interfere with the uncomfortable breathing and I'm not gonna let it interfere with the quality of the mindfulness. So I'll just let that dis uncomfortable sensations float, arise, be there with clarity. And what would motivate one to do that? Why be uncomfortable? Why allow yourself to be uncomfortable with this that kind of attention and mindfulness that just not interfering with things or not letting it interfere with you? So it doesn't disturb you, just, um, just discomfort. Why? And I think one of the reasons why is because you love yourself, you care about yourself, you appreciate yourself. Why would you want to make the situation worse? Remember, don't make it worse. I can't tell you how many times I made it worse. I have, a, I have a whole long history to tell you. You get bored about the wars I had with my breathing, my especially my uncomfortable breathings, until I learned that no war was needed, nothing was needed except allow the uncomfortable breathing to move through the space of awareness, like the hand moving through space. I wouldn't, I wouldn't disturb it, and that way it wouldn't disturb me. We had an alliance. So, um, so then mindfulness. 
and appreciation, I think it's so, one of the great things to appreciate that generates, I think, mudita uh, is the opportunity to practice. Wow. To be able to practice, to be able to be, find out what it's like to be present in this world without conflict. To be present in this world with a respectful, caring attention. To be present in this world and cease, stop, all the ways in which we diminish ourselves and harm ourselves and interfere with the natural beauty that's here for us. Opportunity to become free. And so I, I know I take delight and have a lot of mudita for all of you. And your teachers are strange a lot. You have to realize that we're a, unusual species because uh, we can take delight when you're suffering. <laughs> but you have to understand how we do that. We know all too well that the process of becoming true, the process of seeing what's really here and really honest and meeting, the, meeting ourselves honestly, and to find our way through that into some kind of freedom or some kind of deeper care or some kind of relief from that suffering often necess necessitates us really being present for the suffering, allowing it to be there and show up and be present. And sometimes it can go years and decades that what's deep inside is unattended, maybe festering down there, and finally can come up. So it's only because we know that it's on the path to something good that these Buddhist teachers can smile at you and tell you, I'm suffering. Oh. <laughs> so I hope I haven't irritated too many of you. <laughs> but it's out of love and care and appreciation, mudita, that this is good. You're on, you're on the path. And it's not an easy path to be on. I think of it sometimes like um, if you um, have a piece of wood that's really rough and you want to sand it smooth, you start sanding it. And uh, normally I don't think you would then pass the sandpaper over the wood once and you start complaining about the bumps and the roughness, like, gee, you know, this is terrible, you know. This shouldn't be this way. I, mean, I might as well give up, you know, because it's too rough or something. But you expect it to be rough. And so you do it, and you do it, and you do it. Maybe you get finer and finer sandpaper. And you expect it to be kind of rough, and, and, and that's why you're doing the sanding. So you sand and sand and sand. So it's the same thing with mindfulness. Mindfulness is a little bit like, you know, I don't know, a little bit like sandpaper. and That's soft, <laughs> soft sandpaper. You know, we're kind of, we keep running into the places over and over again where, we ha where the wood is rough. And what that translates into kind of our more human experience is any places, any ways in which we are holding on to thoughts, 
holding on to emotions, resisting anything physical, mental, emotional, any of the ways in which, you know, we are, especially like with thinking, it's amazing how subtle, but also how strong, um, the way we lock in, hold on, um, get attached to or preoccupied with something. And it gets translated into our muscles to be really caught in some kind of thought, concern about something, and really preoccupied and kind of boring down at it, holding on to it, thinking about it. Something inside of us will also get tight or constricted or uh, you know, some tension will arise. And some of that tension can be felt mentally, some of it can be felt physically, maybe emotionally. And over a lifetime, a lot of the different holding patterns get put in place. And so in order to be free, the mindfulness starts seeing all the places where the mindfulness doesn't work. It's kind of like um, if mindfulness is um, if you're in a boat, if mindfulness is the boat that you're in and you're going across the water, but if you have a lot of anchors, heavy objects tied to the side, you know, dangling over the edge into the water, you have a lot of drag and it slows everything down. So if you have a lot of holding, a lot of preoccupations, a lot of concerns, it actually interferes with the mindfulness, it slows it down. And I'm sure you, I mean, you could probably reconstruct for yourself what I'm trying to say here. You know, you, you're mindful for a little while, half a second, <laughs> and then you're not, because now you're concerned about X or Y or this or that. And so the mindfulness has been slowed down, or there's been a little bit of holding or preoccupation or attachment. So all that is normal enough. And so we're sending and we keep doing it over and over and over again. And the fact that so often in this process, we're running up, running up against places where there's holding or tension or where it's awkward or where we lose the mindfulness is not a mistake. It's just that's how the sandpaper sanding works. Okay, here we go again. Here we go again. Okay, let's come back. Let's be, let's find out how to be mindful of this now. Let's non-interfering mindfulness. What's that? In this, this circumstance, let's try to find it. Let's try to be with this. Non-conflictive awareness. What is that? Let's try to find it now with this. What needs my attention here? Where does, it, where does a sanding need to go? Where does a mindfulness need to go? Or I to say it in a way that I think might be more to the point, you can ask the question, what wants my attention now? What is it that wants attention? As opposed to having some preconceived idea of what it, where attention should be. What is it that wants attention here? What is it that you can allow it? What, what, and then 
allow it into awareness. It, my sadness wants attention. So now, if that wants, if that wants attention, that wants care and contact, now how do I, how do I find a way of being present for it that is wise, that's skillful, that's wholesome? Maybe, what does it mean to be have non-interfering awareness of sadness? What is it to have non-conflictive awareness? So then we're experimenting, we're looking and trying to be, this wants attention. And part of what we're doing is we're allowing then the sadness to unfold and evolve. Our inner system, we're, we've evolved over millennia, hundreds of thousands of years, to have a very sophisticated processing system for inner life that unfolds when we make space for it, when we make room for it. And the room and the space is the mindfulness, is the awareness. So to have this non-interfering awareness of sadness doesn't mean you're going to be stuck in sadness. It means you're making breathing room for it, making room for it, for something to shift, to be in a journey with it, to let it unfold, to let maybe help you kind of go deeper and deeper into what's deep inside of you. So, and to generate desire for what's skillful. As I was thinking about this today and thinking about mudita, um, I just kept coming back to two things that are, there's many things which are skillful and many things you can arouse that are helpful. Certainly all the Brahma Viharas. But the two that came back to most to me was appreciation and respect. To ha have appreciation for just about anything, everything, and respect for anything and everything. To respect the things that you encounter, anything that you meet. You know, it's a remarkable thing, I think, just amazing, that the past simply does not exist. There's no, it doesn't exist. It's gone. I'm sorry to tell you that. It's gone, gone, gone. It's completely gone. It doesn't, there's nowhere to be found. You have memories of it, but nowadays people say that our memories are not that accurate. <laughs> so, you know, oh well. And, um, and equally non-existent, totally non-existent, simply does not exist in any way or shape or form, is the future. The past and the future have no inherent, no real, no substantial, there's no way in which they can be seen as really existing. Like, done, gone. We have fantasies about the future, predictions about the future, we have memories of the past, hopes about the past, hopes for a better past. 
what exists. The only thing that can ever exist is what's up is right now. And it's such a small little sliver of the vastness of time. A vastness which also doesn't exist. <laughs> All there is is this. And this is your, this is your only opportunity to be real, to be in contact with what's real. So whatever is really here can you respect it? Can you appreciate it? Can you offer the respect and appreciation that allows you to really see it and hear it and be for, be with it? Register it. Be mindful of it. Be aware. And as many of you know, I love the word respect because of it having the Latin roots meaning to look again. And that you know, mindfulness, you know, we're, we're aware and then we're aware again. We're aware more fully. We Really, let's take this in. Let's be aware of this. It's respectful to do that, to care enough to allow yourself to really register, really see and be yourself, your feelings, your emotions, your thoughts, your, and others, and the things of the world. Now, I want to repeat something very important that I said at first day, an opportunity that you have to both appreciate, respect, really connect to the moment of time that's now in a deep and profound way. And with a lot of respect for yourself and for your fellow retreatants, and that is the care and attention, mindfulness, the presence that goes to opening and closing doors. I am not, I, you know, it sounds silly and maybe kind of absurd for me to keep emphasizing this, but it's a, it's a wonderful, uh, both it's a metaphor, doors that open and close, but it's also um, a daily, regular occurrence that we open and close doors and why not treat that as valuable as trying to stay with your breathing? If you're trying to really offer your attention in a full, complete way to your breathing, your body, whatever's happening in the, in the meditation hall, why not do that for doors? The doors, like everything counts but doors. <laughs> doors are incidental. Doors are just, have instrumental value and nothing else. And the reason I want to emphasize it today is that um, the, uh, it's, it's, it's also a way of caring and loving the community to be really careful when people are napping at night when they're sleeping, to really be careful of those doors and let them close really quietly. And you'll benefit from You'll benefit from the growing growth of mindfulness and attention and really be present. 
And if it's hard for you to kind of really be with doors in this kind of way, what you might discover is the, the, the impulses inside of you that make it hard. Impulses of why you're in a hurry, why you are dismissive, why other things are more important, or way, the ways in which you so easily get lost in your thoughts and preoccupations. Those are all the subject for mindfulness. And so to be dedicated to doors helps you be a mirror to what's going on for you. And it's also a way of helping others sleep better through the night so that doors don't close loudly. Because those doors, the sounds travel quite far. I, want, I wanted to read. <clears throat> um, so, so some of you know that I go, I have a connection to programs being taught in the state prisons. And so then I, I'm often given things that are come out of those prison pro programs. And um, there was a, a little writing that a prisoner by the name of Glenn Hill wrote. It's titled Reflection on Meditation. So he wrote, when I am sad, I meditate. When I am confused, I meditate. When I am unhappy, I meditate. When I am hurt, I meditate. When I am happy, I meditate. When I am angry, I meditate. When I eat, I meditate. When I walk, I meditate. I used to think that meditation was something I did. I kept trying to get it right. But when I became conscious of meditation and became still from within, I began to realize that meditation is not something I had to learn how to do because I am the core of meditation. I am the core of meditation. I just had to learn how to be me from my core self. When I'm conscious and aware of myself, which means being mindful of what am I of what I am doing, I am meditating. And I am there, and I am present in that moment. No matter if it's walking, talking, smelling, listening, eating, hearing, or just feeling something, I become that experience, and it is mirrored in my actions and deeds. Meditation for me is being present in the moment and not getting caught up in the stories of the moment, not allowing the adjectives to dictate my present moment, not allowing the adjectives to dictate my present moment. Isn't that a fascinating, it's like a koan. Not allow the adjectives to dictate my present moment. Stopping to hear the sound of a bird or just seeing it fly without any judgment, I become that bird. Feeling a breeze from the wind, I become that breeze. I am all things when I am in my meditation, my core self. 
For me, life is beautiful when I just accept it as life. I live it and appreciate it. The only time I'm not meditating is when I'm sleeping. Then I rest in my own energy. Being focused and present at all times is my meditation. Then he continues by writing, saying this, on Friday the 10th of April, 2015, sitting in mindful meditation, I was asked, what does meditation do for me? Today I can answer that question. And he continues by saying, by writing, meditation allows me to live in the moment without stress. I live to live with peace. It allows me to get back to my core self. When I find myself not in the moment, I bring myself back to the moment by taking two or three deep breaths and let go of what it was that took me to my made-up world and let go of what it was that took me to my made-up world. The reward I get is peace within and healthy decision moments. The reward I get is peace within and healthy decision moments. Isn't that great? This is a person who made some unhealthy decisions. <laughs> the difference between destruction and gratitude, the difference between love and hate. I live for the moment in the moment. I live for the moment in the moment. I am meditation. And then this, where this book, where this, uh, this writing appears, the, the editor of the, of the book writes, uh, Glenn was released from prison shortly after writing this piece. So one of the intentions I had for giving this talk was um, not so much to say, not to say too much, but to share appreciation of the practice and this connection to being, to appreciate ourselves and, and to love and to be aware and to kind of hopefully support you in your, your own appreciation, your own love, your own connection between awareness and mindfulness, the practice, and a, a kind of deep self-care, and a deep kind of coming home, coming to, this Glenn Hill talks about the core self, I don't use that language so much, but coming into what's deep inside, coming into what's most free or most not closed, where the heart is not shut, where the beauty resides, where the desires that can flow come from that beauty, not from the pain or not from the 
what's closed. And to, uh, I was hoping that in t somehow in giving this talk that it would inspire you to be even more interested in being still and being a certain kind, of, certain kind of stillness which allows the awareness to be brighter, which allows mindfulness and attention and care to somehow become brighter. One of the values of not being spinning ourselves in a lot of thinking, when there's a lot of thinking and we're spinning and pasts and futures and all that, there's very little room for awareness. And as we know, sometimes there's no awareness at all. But there's a way in which we can feel our way or ease our way or open our way to a certain kind of soft, beautiful, vital stillness of the mind, thinking mind, discursive mind, there's actually a lot more, it's kind of like pulling the curtain, opening the curtain to the window and then we can see the vista. Or it's kind of like clearing all the boxes from a packed room and suddenly there's an open room to explore. So there's to, to make room to let go of the thinking or quiet the thinking or feel your way into a stillness so that there can be a heightened space to feel and be aware of this moment, of what's real, the experiences here and now. So I'll end with a poem by David White. The poem is titled, Enough. Enough. These few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, this opening to life, we have refused again and again, until now, until now. Enough, these few words are enough. If not these words, this breath. If not this breath, this sitting here, This opening to the life we have refused again and again until now, until now.